What is growth equity and what does it mean to partner with a company in a growth equity investment? What's driving the market for these deals in Europe at the moment? And what's next for this fast-growing segment of the private equity market? We'll be discussing all this and more with our guests from HPE Growth and Bregal Milestone in this latest episode of the Unquote Private Equity Podcast. Hello, listener, and welcome to this new episode of the Unquote Private Equity Podcast. I'm Harriet Matthews, Head of Funds Coverage at Unquote and Merger Markets, and to talk all things growth equity with me today, I'm joined by two managing partners at growth equity firms in Europe that will likely be familiar names to many of our listeners. Manfred Cricker is a managing partner at HPE Growth. He's been with the firm since 2014 and took on the role of managing partner in July 2021. Cyrus Shea is a co-founder of Bregal Milestone, which was formed in 2018. Manfred and Cyrus, welcome to the Unquote Private Equity Podcast. Thank you for having us. Having us. Now, let's start with the basics, and I'm sure each of you can add a perspective here. What is growth equity, and how does it differ from typical venture or buyout strategies in terms of approach or returns, for example? Yeah, I think uh, growth equity is is different in in many ways from from both of those other categories, venture and and buyout, and and maybe the 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 aspect of it that that I would like to highlight is that um, from a mentality and DNA and approach point of view, when you're a growth equity investor, um, you're typically a partner with other shareholders, management team. And um, often not a um, majority owner of businesses, and so that partner mentality is one that we believe is uh, very important to have, very deeply ingrained in in the approach, in the team, and how you um, discuss and ultimately decide on important decisions uh, for for a company, and and so that is also true for. Uh, venture investors. So, so this is more kind of a difference between buyout and growth. And then the way in which we differ from venture investors is, you know, we focus on companies that are already a little bit further along in its size and the, the size of the team, the nature and, and the maturity of the product, and often the geographies in which they are active. Um, and so our work then focuses a bit more on scaling the business than it does on sort of the initial innovations around, you know, building the product. And so each of these things sort of requires different experiences, different expertise and, and skill sets. But, you know, maybe rounding off, I think, you know, one of the, the, the things that I love about it is that partnership aspect, because not only do we get to partner with, you know, great founders and, and management teams, we also get to partner with other shareholders like, you know, Cyrus from, uh, from Bregal Milestone, um, where we can find partners who have, you know, different skills, different scale, um, and yet, you know, similar goals and mentality and uh, jointly can support companies on their uh, path to success. Those are all really great points. I would I would add that you know from our side we see a lot of growth equity candidates be founder led businesses where they haven't raised a lot of institutional capital and they're looking for something different than what a venture capital firm or a buyout firm can can provide. By way of example, 
they're looking for a strategic growth partner. They're looking for someone who can add value to their business. Often they're, they're at a stage of their maturity where they've achieved size and scale in a, in a region or internationally, but they want to take their business to the next level. And so they want support on go-to-market, on sales, marketing, uh, how to acquire customers more cost-effectively and move them through their funnel and convert them into closed, closed business. They're looking for uh, for talent recruitment support. So in a lot of situations, including on a portfolio company that Monfried and I work on together, uh, we're actively working with the management team to fill out white spots on the, on the management team and sales marketing uh, product to, to really build a world-class business. And, and we become in, a, in effect sparring partners with the, with the founders and we can, we can add value in distinctive ways that, a typical venture or buyout firm may, may think a little bit differently. I see. So quite a few distinctions to be made there in terms of the kind of support the companies need and also in terms of your approach as an investor. And I wanted to ask you both how the growth equity industry really has developed in Europe, maybe over the last 20 years or so. So since the beginning of the 2000s, Cyrus, maybe you'd like to take this one first? With pleasure, Harriet. Growth equity has evolved quite a bit over the past 20 years as we've gone through up, up and down cycles in the markets. And, you know, we're, we're at the end of a pretty long bull run, primarily if you look during the COVID period, we had very low interest rates. We had a lot of money flooding into the, into the capital markets. We had a very conducive IPO market. And so that really created a, a market that was conducive to Multiples coming up with a lot of uh, capital being raised in the private markets to support that ecosystem. And, and a lot of the private companies have stayed private for longer before they go public. But nevertheless, it's created a real uh, capital inflow into the growth equity space in Europe. And now we're starting to see the end of that as, as, as we enter into it, you know, geopolitical risk in 2022. We have, uh, we have, rising interest rates, we have recessionary fears. And as a, as a consequence, as with any 20-year cycle, you'll see ebbs and flows in the markets and the capital markets and in investor sentiment. That said, European growth equity has evolved quite a bit over the past 20 years because uh, it was really an underserved asset class and continues to be in Europe. If you think about uh, 20 years ago, you know it was very, very nascent and probably most uh, investors and entrepreneurs did not did not really realize that there was an asset class called European growth equity as it over the past five years, certainly over the life of our respective investment firms, Regal Mouse Center and HPE Growth, we've seen it. Uh, we've seen seen the supply and the demand slowly converge, but we still, you know, our house view is that this, the European market is still structurally underserved. So there's about a third as much capital in the European market as there is in North America serving this thriving European entrepreneurial-led ecosystem. And that's why we we continue to believe that this is a very attractive space where we have huge, huge enthusiasm when we see our pipeline and our activity uh, as to how exciting the European growth equity sphere is and will continue to be going forward. And, and it really requires European mindset. So if you, you can't necessarily come from North America, transplant yourself to Europe and say, all right, we're going to build a successful extension to our platform. You need to be sensitive to European jurisdictions. You need to have a track record in local market knowledge. You need to have a diverse team that has deep coverage in each of the markets that we, we operate 
fit in. And so our firm has, you know, 12 nationalities. We speak 12 European languages. We've done deals in all six corners of Western Europe. We think that that matters relative to uh, to our peer group. Yeah, maybe adding to that, Harriet, I think, uh, you know, that you know, I spent the majority of my career working in, in Silicon Valley, where you have a, a fairly complete ecosystem of funding sources for various stages of technology companies and all kinds of other um, expertise that companies can draw on. And it's been really interesting over the last 20 years, and I would say particularly the last 10 years, how quickly that has grown, that ecosystem in, in Europe. So the, the potential for uh, the segment has really uh, uh, grown, you know, rather explosively. You know, many, many, many more startups and experienced entrepreneurs. And I would say, you know, in the old version of European entrepreneurship, entrepreneurs would have to knock on the door of banks, and banks tend to uh, not really take a lot of risk in, you know, high growth uh, companies, particularly if they're not profitable yet which really put Europe in a disadvantage to the US where companies were already very well funded and more risk could be taken, which also leads to you know, very large and, and strong technology companies that act globally. But that has all changed now. There is much more sort of, uh, of that ecosystem capital available. And at the same time, I would say it's not complete yet, which is where you know Cyrus and I and others of our peers, we can sort of fill in those gaps, you know, provide some of that expertise in addition to, of course, the capital to help these companies uh, uh, grow. And, you know, one of the very uh, interesting parts is, of course, that um, the U.S. has had a much more active IPO market than, than Europe has had. And so there's still a lot of kind of preparation of an education of companies that we can do to prepare them for uh, a path towards being an independent market leader and uh, go public, uh, aside from you know their international expansion that Cyrus already uh, already mentioned. So we see actually um, maybe looking a bit into the future that there there are already some markets that you can look to that have shown where some of those pieces of the puzzle are still needed. And you know we can bring a lot of that to um, uh, European companies. Some of that can be provided by you know drawing on our um, global network of of uh, people with with expertise in these areas, or even global capital markets. And some things need to be provided locally. Why it's indeed so relevant, as uh, Cyrus says, that you have sort of feet on the ground and expertise in uh, many of these markets in Europe. Right. Can I ask there, Manfred, where you see pieces of the puzzle potentially missing or where those potentially developing areas are? One that I already mentioned is uh, the IPO markets. You know, uh, part of my career I spent um, taking companies public. So I've been involved now with 17 IPOs, of which 16 on, on the NASDAQ in the US. And that is a market that is uh, very well oiled. It, it's not always as positive as other times. So sometimes companies stay private longer, like Cyrus mentioned. Sometimes the window is so active that companies can go public at an earlier stage. And, and one might ask, like, is that, you know, really, you know, a, a positive or a negative? But the, the availability of public capital to fund ventures has been a very uh, 
fundamental function of those markets ever since you know um, the invention of stock markets in Amsterdam, where people would share the risks of venture of discovery in uh, foreign markets with uh, public investors. So I think you know for growing uh, high growth companies and, and a lot of those in technology or in biotech, um, it's a logical next phase of um, capital and independence. And, and that's actually something that um, we're starting to fill in. You, you saw already in 2021 um, that there was more appetite from public investors in Europe to, to fund uh, growth companies as opposed to low growth, high profitability type companies. Yeah? So growth investing versus value investing. But the, the number of people that really focus on that and understand how to analyze um, public growth companies is, is smaller in Europe than it is in, uh, in the United States. And so we can play a role in sort of preparing these companies to be of very high quality standards in terms of their predictability, their information, the quality of the management team and their processes, um, you know, quality of revenue. And those are all things that we focus on, which, which build value for these companies in any case, but also um, would prepare them to be ready to be public companies. The second part that, that I think, sorry to take a bit of time on this, but the second part is uh, US companies have a lot of access to experienced managers who have uh, managed companies um, to grow at scale uh, because they've been doing that for a long time. So there's a lot of talent available to uh, figure out how to grow even you know, multi-billion companies at high growth rates. And so that experience is starting to build in the European ecosystem. Um, but we've also seen that it's very valuable sometimes to bring some of that talent with the uh, uh, been there, done that type of experience uh, from the U.S. into European companies. Now, those are great points, Manfred. And you know, we, in respect of the the talent that that exists in North America, that deep talent pool, where uh, there's a, a number of senior talent that uh, has the established track record work, working with scale ups and can add a lot of value both as executive executives in these companies as well as non-executive directors on boards. There's uh, there's definitely a a lot of learnings from that. And we've seen we've seen it as well. And I think when we work with a lot of these late stage technology businesses, the the muscle memory that we have, the access to to that talent pool, the the network that we have is what we really try to activate on behalf of our portfolio companies. We recognize that we have a duty and a responsibility to um, be really value-add partners and to, to and strategic growth partners, these portfolio companies, the, the skill set that is required to take a business from zero to 15, 20, 30 million of revenues is, is completely different from the skill set that's required to take it from 30 to 100 million revenues. Uh, part of this is uh, how, how well you, you know, whether you've established product market fit in a very large addressable market and certainly any entrepreneur who's able to get their business to uh, size, scale, and product market fit is has achieved something outstanding. However, uh, taking it to more markets, taking it to you know expanding the product roadmap so there's more products to sell to existing customers, coming up with the sales discipline to be able to sell a product in a in a much more structured and organized way globally 
but global customer base is a skill set that requires a partner who has done it before. And again, that's a very specialized skill set that uh, firms like like Monfried's firm and our firm offer in the growth equity space, uh, where we can we can be those strategic growth partners, help them with talent, help them access that talent, and help them think organizationally how to set themselves up to be a much larger institutional business. Often that requires uh, founders to surround themselves with people who are almost overqualified for the next stage of growth, but we have, we have a successful track record doing that, and we think that that specialized skill set is what is a is really the key ingredients to having a successful exit in five to seven years, either in the public markets or the private markets. Interesting. Definitely some fascinating dynamics at play there then on the operational side, as well as looking at the public and, and private perspective. So thanks both of you for expanding on, on that point. Just taking a step back now from the more operational growth equity on the ground side, I wanted to get a take from both of you on the LP view of growth equity as an asset class, as a place to commit capital. I understand that there's quite a lot of USLP interest in the European growth equity space nowadays, but has that always been the case? Can you give me a bit of an overview, Manfred, perhaps starting with you? I don't think that has always been the case. And, and the, the U.S. interest in Europe has sort of uh, uh, gone a bit with uh, ebbs and flows eh? at times. You know, when, when you're at a, you know, 50,000 foot level, you know, from the U.S. looking into Europe, sometimes people look at um, more kind of what are the GDP growth numbers. And so at times um, that looked very attractive and capital is flowed into the market and in, in less economic attractive times, more uh, out. But of course, like anything, if you peel back the onion, you will see that there are certain sectors that have real sort of long-term secular growth, technology, biotech being, you know, two of those, and there are a few others. And so I think now, um, and, and those tend to float more on the talent, the entrepreneurship, the, the know-how and knowledge and, and, and intellectual property that is developed in, you know, by incredible scientists and, and uh, uh, developers that center around you know, universities. And, and Europe has an amazing amount of technology that sort of uh, makes its way into the market that way and, and has often been missing a bit, you know, how does that get funded into independent and, and globally potentially so now that's becoming a little bit uh, clearer that European technology and growth companies have, you know, uh, uh, are on a long-term path of delivering a lot of value uh, to investors, a lot of innovation to the market, and some really strong global technology companies have emanated from Europe. You see that I think LPs are also investing a bit for the long run into the European market. I think a lot of people are seeing that um, technology growth is no longer just limited to you know, where the epicenter is in, in the United States, particularly in Silicon Valley, but it's spreading both inside of the US. So people are, you know, US LPs are more used to investing in non-Silicon Valley-based uh, technology growth, both venture and growth. And a big part of that is also uh, Europe. One, I think, very important aspect of that is that because of its history, the lack of availability of venture and growth capital historically 
European entrepreneurs have a slightly different mindset when they're building these companies. So what you see is often have a way of um, achieving a certain scale and growth with less resources and means. So, so with the same amount of capital, you can build a larger company in Europe than you can in the US, partially also because people are willing and excited to build those businesses. And you know the, the salaries of the engineers are, while attractive, not quite as high as they are in some of the real hotspots where there's an incredible shortage of, uh, of such engineers. So I think you, you know, your capital goes a little bit further in Europe than it does in some other spots of the world and, and LPs are attracted to that. Right. And Cyrus, what's your take on that? What are your LPs telling you and what are you seeing in the market from potential and current investors? We're seeing a lot of interest as, as growth equity has emerged as an independent asset class. I think it was, if you look 10 years ago, there was really an LP cohort that, that bucketed the world as venture and, and buyout. And then that, that middle, middle layer of growth was an undefined asset class where from a portfolio construction perspective, if you're an LP, it was hard to define whether growth was really late late stage venture or whether it was uh, a derivative of buyout. And I think today that's been a little bit more defined because growth has delivered returns that have been superior to buyout, uh, albeit that's been a function of not not a the historical data only goes back a certain number of years and buyout has has a much longer uh, set of data to support the performance. Nevertheless, uh, the fact that it's done so well in the United States and the fact that Europe has, has, as we've discussed earlier, has the structural tailwinds to support this thriving ecosystem of first and first generation entrepreneurs that are that are really proud to be European and are, are trying to scale their businesses globally suggests that uh, this is only as, as you think about capital inflows in the LP space and diversification of portfolios, there's going to be a lot more focus and investment in the European growth equity space. Uh, and that's also underpinned by some of the themes that Monfried had, had highlighted. If you, look at, if you look at COVID and what that did in terms of accelerating some of the trends that we see across uh, health, education, digitalization, productivity, uh, cybersecurity and and all the all the uh, supporting themes in those categories. There's been uh, there's been a lot of companies that have accelerated their growth during over the past two years, and that's presents that presents to investors like ourselves new and new and exciting investment opportunities that we can capitalize on, and in turn the LPs can also benefit from. Interesting, right? Now, given that both of you and both of your firms uh, do invest in European growth equity, I wanted to ask whether you consider yourselves to be competitors or how you would differentiate yourselves from your peers, perhaps. Uh, Cyrus, what's your take on that one? So Manfred and I are co-investors in a, in a company called Uberall. We have uh, worked together for a long time and we, we trust each other and we, have, uh, we consider ourselves partners in many respects. Uh, there's... The, the growth equity space is slightly different from conventional private equity in that, uh, that as Monfried said before, a lot, of, a lot of the founders and management teams that we work with are not actively uh, selling their business. They're not in a mode where they're 
trying to necessarily maximize value, but rather they're trying to uh, find the right strategic growth partner. And there's a lot of there's a lot of sector intelligence that, uh, as Manfred operates in with his portfolio, and I operate with my portfolio, and we we obviously are both in the market actively meeting different different companies and different sectors and subsectors. We can come together and and share our thoughts on what areas are interesting to invest in. Uh, in certain circumstances, Manfred and I come together where we think that we can both add value to an entrepreneur and we can team up. And I think that's that's been hugely beneficial to to both of us and synergistic. Uh, obviously, that's the foundation for that is one of trust, uh, having a track record working together on a portfolio company and and building that trust up. And I think going forward that we're going to see a lot more of that in terms of not only the collaboration between our respective firms, but also in the, the growth equity space. I know both of us have worked with other investors in the past. We both have operated in different uh, size and scale companies, but that's not to say that both of us can't add value in very distinctive ways to our portfolio companies and to prospective portfolio companies. I, of course, wholeheartedly agree. You know, If you look at the, the growth space from a 50,000 foot perspective, and you look down on sort of all these firms, it might feel like they're all fierce competitors. But once you're on the ground, then it becomes more clear that there's a lot of different skill sets and different mentality and different approaches to each of these. And you know, in the example of Bregal, Milestone, and HPE, we tend to be a little bit earlier focused, uh, also given our scale and, and appetite for investment, we tend to invest somewhere between you know, 15 and 40 million per uh, investment and, and focus more on sort of series B and series C rounds where Regal Milestone might look at something that has already a little bit more scale. So sometimes we might look at the same investment opportunity as potential competitors, but often it's more in the situation where you know, we have a portfolio. And, and then once you find, because there are now a lot of different firms with those different approaches, different DNA mindset, um, once you find uh, someone at a personal level and a firm at an institutional level that really has similar views of how to build companies, but offer um, complementary skills, um, that's very valuable because in the end, you know, you, you uh, jointly have to support a company. And so if you have different skills and yet, you know, you have the overlap in mentality that, that and the trust as Cyrus mentioned, that you can be transparent with each other, and uh, that really makes um, decision making both better and faster. And I think it benefits both uh, the growth firms that are partnering up, but it also benefits the companies that those uh, firms can team up. And that's the kind of you know kind of um, yeah uh, common ground that we found uh, amongst Bergal Milestone and HPE to uh, support, for example, uh, Uberall and something that you know, we're, we're eager to replicate because sometimes you can find really interesting opportunities to, to do that together. Lastly, turning to the future as well, actually, we've touched on this a little bit and I know it's difficult to make predictions, but what would you say is the future for growth equity? I know we've, of course, mentioned uh, macroeconomic concerns, but 
what are your thoughts on where the market is headed next? Perhaps Manfred, you'd uh, like to take this one first. Yeah, I think Cyrus already mentioned that um, while, for example, uh, US LPs have um, already sort of seen um, uh, a very large ecosystem of venture and growth and buyout funds as private equity sort of really evolved often from uh, the US um, and have allocated specifically um, portions of their investments to growth funds, identifying that they have a, a different risk and reward profile and, and really complement uh, the overall investment in Europe that is now starting to emerge. So while when we started the firm, we had to kind of um, explain more about what is growth capital? Why is it different than, for example, venture or buyout? And why, you know, what? how do we feel about the opportunities in technology? Um, uh, that is no longer really the question for a lot of LPs. It's much more about, like you asked, how are we different from others in the field? So the overall opportunity for growth investing, and in our case, technology growth investing has been uh, made clear and is very clear to a lot of LPs. A lot of LPs are starting to really make uh, specific allocations towards uh, growth funds. And I, I really expect that to continue because there is an important role for us to play in that overall uh, ecosystem. And we can really complement the overall um, yeah, risk and return profile in a very attractive way for, uh, for LP. So I see that growing. I think on the back of that, it also makes sense that, that um, what you will see is that more companies will uh, use the availability of growth capital to stay private a little bit longer as they are preparing for a successful public exit or if they're preparing uh, uh, potentially to be acquired either by you know buyout firms which have also grown in size or strategic buyers and so i think that will be one of the positive consequences that that these companies can use a little bit more time and resources to successfully build their businesses as a as a private company. Right. And Cyrus, what's your take on that? Do you agree or would you add any other predictions into the mix? I, I, I would definitely agree. I would say uh, looking at looking at what's next for growth equity through the lens of the macro situation, I think the uh, we do are, are seeing some uh, trickle down effects from the public markets to the private markets as far as valuations are concerned, which is a healthy phenomenon. And we're, we're happy to see that because uh, it, it means that there's much more rational behavior in the private markets in terms of how to price deals and, uh, and the market is able to reset. We can, be, uh, we can be very excited about what that means for our investors and what that means for performance of growth equity, because I think we're, we're at the end of a long bull cycle. It always takes a little bit of time for the private markets to catch up to the public markets, but uh, I think we'll start to see that in through the rest, you know, over the next few quarters. As far as what's next for growth equity for our firm, you know, we'll we need to continue to innovate. Uh, one of the two thing, two of the things that matter the most to our to our LPs and to our portfolio companies is uh, on one side the the front end of our funnel, so the origination. So we've we've invested a lot into data science. We have an in-house data scientist 
in our team and we built our own proprietary sourcing engine. So origination is really, really important to what we do and how we do it and how we can make sure that we're finding the best possible investments um, at the best possible prices. And then on the, on what matters the most to our portfolio companies and the, and the companies with which we work is what value we bring to the table. We have an in-house value creation team called Milestone Performance Partners. And uh, we've tried to operationalize the value add that we bring to these companies, whether it's sales and marketing, talent recruitment. Uh, also, a lot of our, our founders are mission-driven and they want to help them with uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion, or uh, they want, want us to help them with, um, with uh, data privacy and security or decarbonization. So we, we've, we have to think more broadly than just how to create uh, shareholder value, but also stakeholder value and, and build sustainable businesses. And our, our milestone performance partners value creation team works hand in hand with our management teams to think holistically around all those different pillars. Right. And Manfred, anything to add on your side uh, in terms of the picture at HPE and uh, the future there, what you're doing operationally, for example? Yeah, no, exactly. We, I mean, we uh, see some of the same things. I, one, one thing uh, that I thought was very interesting uh, that Cyrus mentioned is that, you know, indeed, we're coming off a very long bull cycle, particularly uh, also in technology and, and a correction of valuations was uh, logical. I would also say hand in hand with that, if capital is um, cheap and very widely available, you also have, as an entrepreneur, the option to sort of pursue growth at all costs. You can build a very successful business, making use of a lot of equity capital and taking a position in the market. And that can be very successful. There are lots of examples where that works. I think there are also a lot of examples where that didn't work, except those don't really survive in the media. And we have always had a very sort of efficient growth mentality. So while we are a growth firm, we always also keep one eye on the cost structure and the amount of capital that is required to build a successful business. And we find companies that have a similar uh, mentality. And this is one of those elements of uh, DNA and philosophy and how to build businesses that I think we share with, uh, with Brigal. And so the market is kind of coming our way. While there are a lot of firms that have been successful pursuing growth at all costs, we think that um, in the market going forward, you asked about, hey, where, where do you see it going uh, at the moment? We think that there will be uh, more balance between pursuing growth, um, but also moderating the amount of capital and the amount of acceptable losses to get there. Um, that fits, you know, an efficient and capital efficient growth strategy. And, and so we've had that strategy from day one. That's really what is part of our DNA. It's also because we as partners have been part of the uh, investment cycles dating back to 1994. So we've seen the ebbs and flows of capital. And we think that, you know, this type of efficient growth strategy survives the ebbs and flows because these companies are then independent of the amount of capital is available in, in the market. And, you know, I see that, you know, uh, Brigal Milestone has similar uh, philosophies. Also why we then sort of uh, see eye to eye when we partner up on sporting uh, 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 businesses. But generally speaking, you know, long-term technology growth is clearly there. 
Um, but the approach to building businesses also ties with the amount of capital that's available. And so we see that sort of moderating and a bit, you know, coming our way in terms of our, uh, our approach. Great. Fascinating to hear both of your views on that. And I think that's probably all we have time for today. But Manfred and Cyrus, thank you very much for joining us. It's been a pleasure to speak to you both today. And thanks to everyone for listening to this episode. If you like the podcast, don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you again in the next episode of the Unquote Private Equity Podcast.